Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. Today is with Glenn Mullen. He's a, you would almost think he's a comedian, really, and he's really not. He's a, a lama. He has been studying uh, Tibetan Buddhism for many, many years. He teaches it. He's written over 25 books about it. Incredibly playful uh, nature has Glenn, and a lot of jokes to tell. He had, uh, had me in tears a variety of times. He, he talks about a lot of things. We talk, obviously, we talk about Buddhism as a whole, but we talk about the idea of simplicity and meditation and, and what tantric Buddhism is about and love and compassion and this notion of universal responsibility. We talk about the beneficial presence of others and, you know, if, if it sounds... And, and something called humorful humility, which just the, the, the whole interview appealed to me on so many levels. And there's humor laced throughout. And I think the reason why you have to stay tuned to the interview, and, and you are going to enjoy this one, is because uh, Glenn talks about the first Tibetan fart joke. And it's important for a variety of reasons. You'll find out why it was written about by the seventh Dalai Lama in a poem. It's remarkable, all the teaching that comes through poetry in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, but I would imagine in Buddhism in particular. DavidPeckLive.com for more information about podcasting, my public speaking, uh, and my book called Real Change is Incremental. Stay tuned for Glenn Mullen. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We are joined by a, a very special guest uh, today, uh, and we are going to be talking, I think, about a whole lot of things, actually. Uh, Glenn Mullen is here today. He's a llama, and I'm <laughs> going to let him tell you what that actually is. But he spent uh, 12 years in Tibet, living in the Himalayas, and learning a whole lot about Buddhism, um, and was mentored by many, including the Dalai Lama. So, Glenn, thank you for joining us today. My joy and my pleasure. I kind of wish we were in the Tibetan mountains doing this conversation <laughs> and not in Burlington, Ontario. It seems a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a letdown, frankly, don't you think? Yeah, a life under fifteen thousand feet is <laughs> certainly slows down a little bit. I, I bet it does. I bet it does. So you were here and have been here uh, teaching and speaking and so on. You were speaking re uh, last night on enlightenment tips from the early <laughs> Dalai Lamas, which is very funny to me. You know, it's this whole idea, this sort of uh, 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 enlightenment for dummies almost in, in a way. Yes, it has that kind of flavor to it. Um, when I travel and lecture, uh, basically it started because I, I began writing and translating books from Tibetan in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And uh, with publishers, they do try to get their writers to do lecture tours, reading tours, and so forth. So in the early days, I would have my lecture subjects quite serious topics, readings from the poems of the second Dalai Lama, and <laughs> those kind of titles. 
But I over, bet, I over the year, I bet you sold those out too. <laughs> Ticket sales were just, they were flying uh, off the spoke, shelves. They flew like hot cakes right, uh, right, in, right. in a yes. hungry line at, at a food right. kitchen. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so between probably 85 and about 2000, at that time, uh, reading tours were very popular all over the States, in Europe, Canada. So they were very often done in a kind of a serious way. But uh, since then, with the internet and these kind of uh, facilities and with Google stealing most people's books and just putting them online and so on, uh, reading tours aren't so common. And uh, as I've gotten older, of course, and my meditation has gotten more uh, strong, I'm more often asked to speak on the meditative side of the um, Tibetan tradition. And in terms of my own background, I lived in the Himalayas continuously from 72 until 84 and studied with many of the great masters of the time. But uh, uh, of course, uh, Gyawar Rinpoche, Yishinobu, as the Tibetans call him, the great accomplished Buddha wish-fulfilling gem. <laughs> Which sounds a lot better than His Holiness, the mm, Dalai Lama. It's mm. an Irish Protestant. I never much like that His Holiness mm. stuff. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he was kind of our... I think it's hilarious, by the way, that I'm sitting across from an Irish Protestant who studied with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> it's just fabulous. I think, we have, I think we have the makings of a sitcom here. On there you hands. go. Yeah. There you go. As a young man, you know, my mom said to my brother and uh, sister and I that, oh, when you grow up, we don't care who you marry, any race, any religion, but no Catholics, because they don't allow us Protestants to visit their heavens. <laughs> <laughs> so she, when I met the Dalai Lama and I wrote back from India that I'd met him and uh, he had opened a school for Western people, she wrote back and said, even if you die tomorrow, there's not a greater honor you can bring to this family. Mm. <laughs> she mm. was a British nice. war bride. Nice. Her dad had been in the but army. But still no room for the Catholics. <laughs> Especially no room for the Catholics. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> she was really, you could say, an Elizabethan. Mm. Mm. <laughs> in that side. Oh, she liked Catholics as people well enough. She just didn't <laughs> like the fact that we weren't allowed to go to their heaven after we're dead. Right, right. <laughs> Nothing no, like, vis no visitation. Nothing right. like religion to include everyone, eh? <laughs> include and embrace. Especially, especially certain forms of religion. Yeah, we no. won't mention which forms. Well, I want, and, I, and I do want to get into that a little bit, uh, Glenn, as well. But, mm -hmm. but tell, give us a little bit of context here. So, raised in Quebec, Gaspé, uh, um, how the heck did you end up in the Himalayas? I mean, it's I think just, in many ways, uh, thanks to my my mother, because. Um, as a Londoner, the Brits had, of course, attempted to bring civilization, the British sense of civilization, to much of Asia. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> For several hundred years. And as I mentioned, her dad, my granddad, uh, maternal granddad, had been in India for many years mm. uh, as a major in the British Army, maintaining that effort to bring British sense of civilization. <laughs> But while the Brits were in Asia, they fell in love with all things Asian. They really became admirers of the Indians and the Chinese and the, the, the Muslims and so forth. And very often these were, uh, the officers were second or third sons in aristocratic families. And so they were highly educated and they'd find themselves in India or Hong Kong or Malaysia or somewhere other end. They'd want to learn the language and then study some of the philosophy and translate some of the books. So all of the early translations of books from Pali and Sanskrit and uh, Chinese and so forth mm -hmm. are done by peoples associated with that whole structure. Right. And as a result, my mom always had plenty of Asian materials, reading materials around the house. And Interesting. I had a real respect and love for things Asian. And uh, at one point I read a reference to the Dalai Lama and at that time had a, almost like you could say an epiphany, so sort of like uh, St. Paul of Caris, uh, uh, Carsus. <laughs> yeah, the, the, uh, on the road. Right. Yes. Yeah. And it was like this very strong sort of electrical zap, like, hmm. wow, this is someone who's going to be influential in my life or this is someone I really have to meet in this lifetime. There's some sort of connection there. 
And after college, I went to uh, England uh, to meet my mom's side of the family. And when I was there, I heard that Dalai Lama had opened a, was opening a school for Western people. Oh, okay. Because he had so many people sort of coming and you know, asking for, you know, teachings, lectures, and uh, whatnot. And he's a busy guy. <laughs> yes, I bet. So he opened a school and he appointed two lamas to be our teachers. And he requested his own two teachers, Ling Rinpoche and Trishan Doji Chang, to give whatever initiations we would require for the tantric side of the training. And so from that time on, so I went and I wasn't sure what it would be like to see the Dalai Lama when you kind of hype these things up mm -hmm. in your mind. Sometimes they're disappointing. Yeah. 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 But in his case, he was just a very, very beautiful, charismatic man, mm. very very wise, very open, very mm -hmm. energetic, and, and full of fun and laughter. Right. It sort of reminded me of like being with my own uncles and mm. my, of the Irish Protestant humor. Wonderful. And, as you know, all of the books on the sufferings of the Irish and the unhappy lives of the Irish, all written by Catholics. We Irish <laughs> Protestants only talk about the fun side of life. <laughs> so the Della Lama sort of embodied that. There used to be a famous radio show in Canada called Peter Zowski, the Peter Zowski show. And he retired, I think, but 10 years ago. But when I came back from India, I did a number of his shows, and he said, you laugh like the Dalai Lama. Mm. And I said, oh, that's because Dalai Lama must be part Irish. <laughs> 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 but I, you know, the, the man really is just spectacular human mm. being, a mm. wonderful example of mm. what a good human being should be. And... Uh, Anyway, he facilitated our study is in Dharamsala, and we could see him once a week in the early days before he became too busy. He had a sort of open audiences, either Mondays or Fridays. And so I, at first I thought I'd just study for three years, but after three years still didn't know much, so it became six, and then it became nine, and finally it was 12. And uh, then I had sort of some confidence in my level of understanding and experience and stability and so forth. What do you have? What do you have now after about forty-five years? Uh, well, I would say that uh, one after training for a certain amount, one's mind achieves a kind of a uh, in in meditation. One's mind achieves a kind of a a stillness like the great lakes at midnight on a full mm. moon. With mm. the... <laughs> I've. I've... I've, you know, Glenn, I've watered You remember that yourself, morning. but you did it with a bottle of single malt. That's right, yes, yes. 16-year-old leg of woolen, actually, I think it was. I've water skied in the morning early, many, many years ago when I was young and foolish. And I, that, that's exactly where I went, that beautiful looking sort of down. Mm -hmm. And it was like I was on a sh massive mm -hmm. sheet of glass. Just absolutely stunning, <laughs> right? I can see it. I was probably 14, 13 mm -hmm. at the time. Yes. And, you know, in Tantric Buddhism, especially in Kalachakra, the Tantra, they say every 200 days a human body-mind complex comes into perfect synchronicity with the rest of the universe. Hmm. So every 200 days we have a kind of a, a natural epiphany or epiphonic epiphionic yeah, sure. <laughs> environment, yeah. if you will. Yeah, sure. That And some people notice it and some people don't. They just think, oh, it's a great day or I feel wonderful so, today or I feel especially like bright and happy today. But I think if people look back over their lives, they'll notice many natural events that uh, so induce those, that kind of those state. Those 200 days would be different for everyone. So Correct. my day could be tomorrow, yours could be 200 days right, from now. Right, okay. right. Okay. It's based okay. on your own body chemistry and mm. whatever else. Your own karma, sure. which in Buddhism just means your overall energetic patterning, <laughs> something like that. And uh, yeah, so for myself, I, I felt uh, nicely settled in my training, in my practice, spiritual practice, and in my, my life. And from that time on, it's just, uh, I suppose it's a little bit like when you grow a tree or you grow a garden, there's a certain period when everything's very fragile and it takes a great deal of attention. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You let it go for a day or two and it's all gone. But when that tree or that garden achieves a certain level of maturity, it takes very little maintenance. Right. Right. It just 
follows its own, blossoms on its own natural energies. So I would say I had that kind of a gardening experience. I use a gardening metaphor partially because I really like that Peter Sellers movie, Being There. Okay. <laughs> and the, but also because as a teenager, sure. I did a lot of landscape gardening so, for, for nickels and dimes in the summer. <laughs> I saw you speak very recently and uh, heard you speak, I suppose, and saw. And you talked about the playful nature to Tibetan spirituality. And you, you kind of sounded to me like you were making a distinction between other forms of Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism perhaps, although that's out of India as well mm -hmm. from my understanding. Mm -hmm. But, but you, you are <laughs> playful. You've got a great laugh. You are making jokes, your, your demeanor, your presence, etc. Can you talk a little bit? You, you made a comment about the Dalai Lama, you know, being energetic <laughs> but also fun. It's yeah, not the first yeah, word that comes to mind for me when I think of the Dalai Lama. All right, but everyone so. who knows him, it is one of the first. Yeah, like, I bet. He was once talking in Washington, D.C. a few years ago, and I was listening. He says, well, Desmond Tutu. I always like being around Desmond Tutu. He's a little bit like me. We're both very mischievous. It's <laughs> pretty funny. Always when we're sitting together tickling and teasing well, and pulling airs and What's twisting What's so beautiful <laughs> about that is there's a, and I think I got this from your talk, there's a, there's a tendency, I think, with folks who are, you know, more spiritual, you know, we'll put that in quotes or italics, mm -hmm. or more religious than we are or others tend to be, you, you, you don't humanize them. You have a tendency right. to, and so I think it's really kind of unsettling and almost disarming, mm. you know, to, to think of the Dalai Lama as being, or Desmond Tutu as being mischievous, you know. Yeah, but I, I think, I think quite it's, wonderful a, it's too. a little bit to do with our own Western Puritanism mm. kind of approach mm. to spirituality, which mm -hmm. wasn't there in Christianity throughout. I mean, obviously, Christ was a playful guy. He turned water into wine, and you know, <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a neat party trick. You've got to admit, <laughs> it's a great it's a great bit. I've tried it many times to no avail. Yeah, yeah but I think we later on it became much more, you know, Christ with the crown of thorns and ever suffering, mm, and this mm, kind of image mm. became much more popularized and sort of the. The suffering mystic was much more the image than, mm, say, the joyful, good. playful it's mystic. Good. So true, yeah. And uh, I think it's just kind of a movement that uh, it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's just a phase Western culture is going through. <laughs> but it's been going through it for a few hundred years, yeah, at yeah. least, yeah. maybe yeah. more. It, yeah, it started who really we, with the Calvinists and the Lutherans. Can we blame Calvin or Descartes? Calvin, no, no, maybe? no, Calvin. I think we have to blame <laughs> Calvin and, and, and Luther. Those, okay, those Calvin were two, and Luther. Yeah. You know, Luther was a bit of a grumpy German. My apologies <laughs> to any grumpy right. Germans who are listening. <laughs> And Calvin was definitely a little bit of a stick. They in were the just mud. burning too many people at the stake. I think is the bottom line. Yeah, and there's there's very little humor in that. I mean, <laughs> that's right. Monty Python and the John Cleese character could make a good skit yes, out of it, but without a behind doubt. it, all the laughter is a little thin. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Blessed are the cheesemakers, I believe. Is that the line? Yeah. No, the Greeks. Yeah. So, so are the you, Greeks for the, Can you the tell? Greeks? What's so special about the Greeks? <laughs> What's so special about the Greeks is what and is having that? a background in the philosophy. Greeks. The Greeks, it's very funny. Yeah. Um, so anyway, with with yeah, I think the humorful, playful side. I remember the first time I brought a group of ten Tibetan lamas mm. to Canada. It was back in 1988, and we traveled coast to coast, Victoria down to Fredericton and Halifax, and I, I brought along a. A friend of mine who's a professional stage man to mm. help these guys set up on stage because lamas normally just chant in the temp temples and monasteries and stuff. so when you put them under stage and lighting it's a whole different thing. And I brought sure. along this guy Brian Burgess who's a professional Trontonian stage manager and uh, he once said well, you can always tell who's the highest lama in the group by who has the best jokes. <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> and who laughs the most? And it was really true. We had, so, is there, in a sense, is are you talking now more about that maybe that Buddhist-like space, that spiritual space that's well, created and, uh, that meditative right. sort of? Well, Buddha it's not that you don't care. Mm -hmm. It's just I don't know. You have a relationship with those around you and the universe around you. I don't know. That's what you would say, playful. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I said that Buddha taught three levels of of uh, spiritual training. And the first often referred to as Hinayana, which means uh, simplifying your life, getting down to bare essentials. Sometimes this has been used 
to refer to schools, but it shouldn't. It's just referring to that movement of how you make, get your life down to quintessential elements mm. so that you can actually know what you're doing. Right. When you add more to things, it's your attention to each individual thing becomes less until basically you just got a big cluttering uh, factory of, of confusion in your right, life. And, uh, right. it's, so it's, the first really means that. And so that's well kind of, you could say, a little bit of a serious side of the practice. Mm. You know, mm. A lot of quiet and mm. a lot of meditation. Mm -hmm. The essence is what they call in Tibetan, the three higher trainings of discipline, meditation, and wisdom training or awareness training. The second, the general Mahayana sort of reaches out into the world as sort of love, compassion, and universal responsibility and this sort of thing. And the third, which is Tantric Buddhism, the essence is what they call Rope Lagi Naljor, learning to see yourself as a playful Tantric divinity and see others as playful Tantric divinities all exchanges with, with others as being playful theater. <laughs> mm. And it tries to pick things up to, you could say, sort of the naturally sacred quality of all beings. Mm. And that sacred quality, in Buddhism often we say, has three, three characteristics. First, it's very radiant or bright. And secondly, it's very awake. Mm. And thirdly, it's very joyful. And often the image is given of like an eight-year-old child. Your mind should be like an eight-year-old child, which is a very playful time of a child's life. Otherwise, in highest yoga tantra, they say it should be like a 16-year-old child, playful with a little bit of too much testosterone thrown in. Right, right, right. <laughs> or with the ladies with too much uh, estrogen. Yeah, <laughs> something throwing you off your game in a sense, your well, meditative well, game. Well, you're playful, but it also has a kind of a sexual gender issue sure, sure, to the sure, quality, sure. which is good yeah, if yeah. it's used in the right way. Can you, can you tell me about the first Tibetan fart joke? <laughs> oh yes, fart jokes, and of course in the West these are very, very popular things. That, uh, <laughs> I even had a ten-year-old. They're very yeah, popular. they're very popular, especially with the ten-year-old crowd and the fifty-year-olds. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they always go over well. They do. They they're always go over. It doesn't right? matter where you are. I mean, they're, I could tell this one to the Archbishop of <laughs> Canterbury or to His Holiness the Pope in Rome, and it would bring a giggle. They, they, they may try not to giggle, but they would giggle. <laughs> they are cross-cultural. Period. <laughs> A lot, of the, a lot of the poetry in Tibetan and the mystical poetry, they call it Nyamgar, Songs of Enlightenment Experience, are often given in playful, yes. uh, sort of jocular fashion. I got that sense from your talk, yeah. So uh, the seventh Dalai Lama was very famous for it. And yes, uh, as I mentioned in my talk last night, he, he, um, this, uh, his uh, Nyamgar has... The first recorded Tibetan joke that I've personally, fart joke that I've personally encountered. <laughs> I'll take your and word for it. And in the verse, it. he says, "There may be. I'm sure there are many others, but I just haven't really? bumped across them." Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a natural human. Of course, it is. Yeah. Absurdity. Yeah. You could. You, you could yeah, have yeah, the most. Yeah. You could have the most dignified man on the planet standing there, and if he passed gas at a dinner party, everyone would start giggling. It's just. Uh, it's a strange. It really is peculiar. It's true. Yeah. Situation. Quite like wonderful if he had a heart way. attack, no one would giggle. No. If he burped, maybe no one would giggle. But if he farts, everyone will giggle. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> so the seventh Dalai Lama put in one of his verse work poems on training the mind. What is like a smelly fart? That uh, the more you try to hide the fact that though you're the one who made it, the more obvious it becomes that you're the guilty party. And the answer is your own faults and shortcomings, whatever your weaknesses. The more you try to hide them, the more people can see them. <laughs> yeah. So it's sort of a spiritual metaphor for the fact that people should embrace their weaknesses, their faults and failings, and only by embracing them can they actually transcend them or heal them or whatever one wants to say, whatever word one wants to use. You made, you made the comment about, about uh, how easy it is to see faults in others. You know, you can see a hundred faults right. in others. Mm -hmm. You can't see the one in yourself. But where's the value in that? The right. value of you. You know, yeah, so you're so kind the, of turning that on its head almost. Right. So from the early Kadampa school in Tibet, uh, 
brought to the greatest flowering of Buddhism in India happened in Bengal, in modern-day Bangladesh, mm. and uh, from about uh, maybe the 7th till the 11th century, when the Muslim invasions basically overthrew that kingdom and, and destroyed it. But uh, a great master came from there to Tibet in about 1042 and lived there and taught until his death. And he, he inspired a movement of this kind of humor, humorful humility. Mm, mm, <laughs> humorful nice, humility. Nice. Uh, humorful uh, humility. So he had, there are many famous verses that are known from these early masters of these, you could say, uh, humorous, humble pie guys. <laughs> and one of them, it's easy to see a hundred faults in others. Uh, very difficult to see even one in yourself. When you find one in yourself, dance and sing like you found a uh, precious treasure. Mm. As for the hundred you see in others, don't be sure you don't mention them. Nobody will like them. It's not going to help them in the slightest. They're just going to dislike you. <laughs> so there's that kind of approach taken. By the, and later on, the Dalai Lamas and Panchen Lamas of Tibet kind of embraced that school very much in their own uh, literary style. Glenn, I love this notion of humor, humorful humility. Is there a sense in which um, the more of a Buddhist you are, the less seriously you take life? Or would you say completely the, uh, the, the, the opposite, that because you take life seriously, you can see it in a well, lighter, more humorful way? No, I think a problem we have with language is that words mean different things to different people. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what does taking life seriously really mean? Right, right. On the one hand, we should understand that every breath we take could be our last breath. I love that line in the Johnny Cash movie, I Walk the Line, where he's singing some spiritual song to Sam Phillips, hoping to get recorded by Sun Studios. And uh, Phillips says to him, you know, I, we're not interested in that old gospel music. And Johnny Cash said, are you questioning my Christianity? He says, no, what I'm questioning is the music. <laughs> right. <laughs> if right. you had one right. song to right. sing, this right. was your last day on earth, you had one song to sing to be remembered for, for all of eternity, what would that song be? And that uh, has to be something which really embodies you and what you feel and think about life. And so then he does that song, Folsom Prison, which, of course, became his sort of trademark song. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> and I think taking life seriously has that kind of a meaning. On the one hand, we should make every moment as intensely present and as meaningful or fruitful as possible. On the other hand, it should be something that also embraces joy, embraces celebration, embraces ecstasy really can i ask you so you you know you right out of the gate you made a joke about the catholics and the protestants <laughs> and, and that sort of division and so on and it's so easy to see and this you know interfaith dialogue is is something i'm very interested in and seems to be moving forward in a, in a very positive way in the west it seems mm -hmm. why i mean I'm, my words why did you walk away from protestantism or or did you really walk away from it? Did you actually just add to it? Did you add a footnote to it? Yeah, Did you I, yes, I don't think one ever leaves anything. One can say one's leaving something, but whatever you have done in your life, whatever you've learned, whatever you've studied, there's no... One can have an intellectual rejection. But, sure. But once the milk is poured into the water, there's no getting that milk it's out. That's good. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I would say from my side, Irish Protestant, I was a, in the choir boy as a young, young man and an altar boy. My mom always volunteered us for all these things, my brother and I, whether we... Whether you wanted well, them or not, yeah. And usually we said no, but it, yes. anyway, it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and in retrospect, it, they were both wonderful experiences. Sure. Uh, I suppose the main difference was our society during the colonial period and the witch hunts of the last four or five hundred years, sort of the mystical elements disappeared mm. from certainly the, the Protestantism in which I grew up and the Catholicism that I knew among, because I grew up in Quebec where it's 80% Catholic. Yeah, so, sure. uh, I would say the mystical elements was kind of hammered out by a 
combination of the witch hunts and the inquisitions and all of these kind of Rational, things. Rationalism, right? The scientific Yeah, and movement. then Descartes with this split of body and mind. Sure. The state owns your body and the church owns your mind. Sure. Yes. This, this kind of breaking. And, you know, Herb Benson from Harvard University, Dr. Benson's done some wonderful studies on how body and mind, this Descartes movement, was so destructive for the Western psyche, for the Western happiness element, you could say, that essentially everything that happens in the mind impacts the body, and everything we do to the body impacts the mind. But because of that sort of lack of a mystical quality, I suppose, I was really... Uh, feeling I needed something a little bit more, well, being a meat-eating Irishman, not right. a fish-eating Catholic, <laughs> right. a bit more meaty. <laughs> right. Right. And I had the good fortune, the Tibetans had the bad fortune, that China invaded their country in the 1950s, and they were the last of the great Buddhist nations, uh, mystical nations, Buddhist mystical nations, to come into modern times pretty well undistorted by colonialism. India had been invaded by the Muslims and the, the mystical traditions there are badly damaged and then invaded by the Brits and again that kind of transformed into a kind of a British Protestant. Hinduism in India kind of became a British Protestantism <laughs> once removed. <laughs> so all of, uh, when I went to India all the Hindu ashrams and schools I visited all basically used mm. Protestant mm. kind of language to talk about what they were. And of course Pakistan the same and Iran and so on. Tibet was the last of the great ancient mystical cultures to come into our era intact and our good luck was that China invaded and these people were pushed out and made very accessible to the world. Of course, it was the bad luck of the Tibetans <laughs> that this happened because the Chinese invasion of Tibet has been catastrophic environmentally mm. and culturally and in other ways. But uh, So then when I met the Dalai Lama and I met his two great tutors, Yungsin Jumbo, Yungsin Che, Yungsin Chung, as they're known in Tibetan, the, the great tutor Ling Doji Chang and the junior tutor, Trijung Doji Chang. Um, I would say they were, you know, really amongst the most beautiful, not amongst, they were the three most beautiful human beings I had hmm. met in my life. And they really did embody all those qualities that as a young Christian uh, in the choir and in the, that we thought of as Christ-like. I mean, they were hmm. gentle, they were non-judgmental, they didn't care who you were or what you were when you stepped in the room, you did have the feeling that they thought you were the most important, precious being on the planet. They had that ability mm. to totally step into your world. And the Dalai Lama still fully embodies that in every, every way. Every, you know, living in Darmstadt for 12 years and then uh, six months a year for the eight years to follow, anyone who ever went to audiences with him was always totally amazed that he was never the Dalai Lama. He would step out of his world, totally into your world. An example, um, a Jewish mom came over to grumble about her daughter studying in Darmstadt for a few years. She should be back in New York. And she stepped into Dalai Lama's office and he looked at her and says, oh, you're probably going to grumble about your daughter being here. <laughs> she says, well, I was going to do that. He said, well, anyway, it's better than if she was a drug addict in New York, don't you think? <laughs> And she burst out laughing and went, yes, as a matter of fact. Mm. Then when she left a half hour later, she said, you know, he's celibate. It's really too bad he can't have kids. He's such a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> Which in the Jewish world, Jewish mother world, is the highest compliment you can give. And another time, a father of a friend visited, and he was going to grumble about his son being there for a few years studying. And uh, when he stepped into Delham's office, Delham said, oh, you're about my age. What were you doing during World War II? And the guy said, oh, I was flying an airplane for the Australian Army. Mm. And Delham said, oh, was it the blah, blah, blah? And he named and mentioned, mentioned the name of the Australian aircraft that was very popular in World War II. He said, because when I was in the, the Potala in the 40s, I always got National Geographic. Someone sent me National Geographic, came in by Yak, from Nepal, and that was my favorite airplane. I would, and they spent the rest of the time just talking about mm. that airplane. Mm. 
So he, he and his two tutors, his two gurus, if you will, his two, the people who brought him, who took him from being a simple peasant boy in northeast Tibet to being one of the great humanists of our, mm. humanitarians of our Yeah, there's something century. very human about your story. Yeah, so it's really, it's really those guys who made him that. All three of them had that ability that when you visited them, the only thing important to them in the world, what was important to you. Mm. And the ability to notice that, sure. to look at you and notice it, and do so in a joyful, playful world. I mean, sure. then way. So once once the conversation gets there, it's not like discussing what's bolt sizes and right. and the screw right. torques and things like this. It's joyfully, the laughingly stuff, discussing the stuff of life. The stuff yes, of life. yes. Can you can you can you talk a little bit about that stuff of life? The, the, that balance between. I guess what, I, and this, these are my words, uh, the, the simplicity of, of what it is that you've come to learn, that mm -hmm. you've only learned through what appears to be pretty intensive discipline. There's almost <laughs> like, it's like a real paradox mm -hmm. in a way. Well, it, what we do with the moments and the, uh, the hours and days of our life really has to do with how we drive this vehicle that's our body-mind, isn't it? And it's like driving long distance in a car. You either take control of the powertrain or you don't. If you don't, you end up helter-skelter in the ditch of the snowbank. <laughs> so I think the Tibetan Buddhist world of training starts with basically spending more time studying your own mind. Mm. The metaphor is often given that the average human being knows lots about things they see, smell, taste, touch, hair, and thoughts about what they say, opinions about that they see, smell, taste, touch, and hair, <laughs> but spend very little time actually just observing the flow of their own thoughts and emotions. Right. And uh, the Buddhist approach, as often in the Tibetan world, is called Nangchu, the inner tradition. Everything, the way you see, smell, taste, touch, hair is largely determined by the quality of your own consciousness. Mm. Two people see Mount Everest and one thinks, wow, that's so beautiful. And another thinks, oh, that's a bumpy little rocky hill with no trees. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and uh, so the quality of your consciousness really determines the quality of your experience, regardless of what it is you're looking at or seeing, or smelling, or tasting, or touching, or hearing. So the Buddhist uh, approach begins with this kind of discipline of keeping your inner life uh, in focus as much as your outer life. And then noticing how your inner life is impacting your outer life. If someone's in a bad mood, the way they speak to their kids, their wives, or co-workers, or whatever, is very different than if they're a happy mood. Um, and so learning to keep part of the mind observing the inner flow of things and noticing how that everything happens outside is coming from that. I think often in Western culture we tend to take it around, something goes wrong in our life, we blame someone else, it's his fault, it's her fault. We don't seem to notice that actually from the moment we were born we walked toward that experience step by step, day by day. <laughs> And somehow, I mean, I, I typically blame Irish Protestants. I, as, I, yeah. as, as do I. Those Irish Protestants, <laughs> right. they're at the root of all the problems in my life, being an Irish Protestant. Money is not the root. The love of money is not the root of all evil. It's those Irish Protestants. <laughs> it's the love of Irish Protestant women. <laughs> That's the root of all evil. Do you know what suffering. I love about what you're saying? You're talking, about, you're talking about observing. You're talking about listening. You're talking about being a better poet. I think, mm -hmm. and to, to write good poetry, you have to observe the world around you. What I found fascinating mm -hmm. about your talk last night is, I'm getting a little shiver here, <laughs> is a lot of the wisdom, I think, these enlightenment tips, mm -hmm. were coming from poets. You know, you talked about the poetry, even the joke, the fart joke comes out of a poem. <laughs> yeah, That's wonderful, yeah. you know? Yeah, the, often we say of the, in the, in the traditional literature of Indo-Tibetan Buddhism, coming from India, that there's three 
levels of dimension. There's three sort of types of enlightened beings or mm. beings spreading enlightenment energy. Three kind of beings uplifting consciousness of the world, for, to put it in kind of a simpler language. And one of those is kind of official or formal. And one of those is just kind of more normal looking and acting, sort of more sort of informal. And the third comes through the arts, mm. musicians, poets, painters. And these beings are very special, even if they don't really notice their own speciality. Right. That they're inspired or moved by a kind of an enlightenment energy or a sacred energy or a, a spiritual energy. Even if they're like Van Gogh, cutting off an ear because some lady is driving them bananas. <laughs> right, right. Still, even in that kind of slightly anguished world, they're still bringing this kind of deeper sense of sure. what's going on in the world and deeper sense of the interconnectedness between the perceiver and the perceived. What in Buddhism we call the three circles, the mm. perceiver, act of perceiving, and the perceived. <laughs> All three of those only have existence because of the other two. And the what is happens in either one is conditioned by the other sure, two. Sure. Um, That's why in crime, often eyewitnesses are the least reliable of evidence. Almost everyone who has ever been convicted of rape or murder and an eye and later has been found to be innocent was many of those were based on eyewitness reports mm, <laughs> mm. because people distort. Right. And of course, the recent neurological studies show this very much. It's almost like we Photoshop images in our mind. If you're hungry and you see a peach, it looks much more delicious than if you're of full. Of course, of course. And if you haven't, you've been lost on a desert island with no beautiful ladies and suddenly you're rescued and brought to a city of only ugly women, they un amazingly look very beautiful. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I mean, you're talking about perspective, you're talking about mind and body being actually connected. Right, right. Right? Yeah. This uh -huh. is not, there is not, a, there isn't a division here at that, right. that point. Sadly, we have to kind of wrap up here in a, in a, in a, in a few minutes. What can you say, uh, and this is a crazy question when, and when I'm only going to give you a couple of minutes to, to answer mm -hmm. it, but about that, what appears to be, when you look around, the, the division. The, the lack of simplicity. And maybe I'm really mm -hmm. making more of a comment about the West than I am about the mm -hmm. East. I mean, even the way we talk about it, it's the Far East, or mm. it's, you know, uh, it's gonna go south. You know, there's <laughs> this like sort of disparaging edge mm -hmm. between the, 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 mm -hmm. the, the developed and versus the majority world, mm -hmm. you know? And I, I, get, I get kind of, I teach, I teach at um, uh, Humber College in the International mm -hmm. Development Program, mm -hmm. and if, if my students use the phrase they or them, mm -hmm. I'll tell them that they're going to lose marks. <laughs> T talk about Cambodians. Mm -hmm. Talk about Mongolians. Mm -hmm. don't, don't, right. right? Mm -hmm. We seem to be set up for division. What the heck's I, going I on? Think, uh, yeah, I think in general, all it's a kind of a speciesism, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's very deeply instinctual. Uh, it begins with basically a, a person is mostly attached to their own body, uh, their own life. After that, they're attached to their family, their brothers, sisters, mother, father, cousins. Then it goes out from there to like, you know, if you're in Montreal, you like the Montreal Canadians. If you're Toronto, you like the Toronto Canadians, even though nobody on the team is from Montreal. Right? <laughs> right, <laughs> Toronto. Right, right, right. And then Canadians, it's okay to kill other people if it's a war, but shooting a Canadian is like a very serious offense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I lecture a lot in the States. It's like, what? Three Americans died in <laughs> Benghazi. Right, right, right. <laughs> Meanwhile, hundreds of... <laughs> Locals died in that confrontation, but somehow those four Americans right, who died are right. so much more serious. That's a natural instinct, and it has its good qualities in that it helps us preserve ourselves, it helps us pre preserve our genetic pool, our sperm pool, if you will, sure. an ovum pool. Uh, but it has limitations, and we should always understand that it is basically a survival instinct and it always has to be sublimated by a deeper perspective. So in the Buddhist world, we do that by contemplating how we are interconnected to all beings in mm -hmm. the world. Your mm -hmm. shirt is made by someone, and 
Right. The sperm and ovum that made your body was borrowed from someone, and they borrowed those sperms and ovum from someone back to the beginning of time. So there's nobody on the planet, nothing on the planet, which isn't your cousin, whether it's a tadpole or a frog. Or Continuous a... <laughs> thread. And everything you get comes to you through the beneficial presence of others. There's no such thing mm. as a non-beneficial presence. It's a beautiful phrase. But even like, uh, and Emory University is um, doing a lot of work with this at the moment. It's called the Compassion Project. And a lot of great scientists are sort of experimenting with it as an educational tool in schools for young people. How everything you have can be beneficial and even harsh encounters with others can be beneficial if you take them in the right way. You can learn from your difficulties rather than suffer through your difficulties. That's one side. Another side, the Tibetans like coming from India's reincarnation. We have millions of previous lifetimes. We're connected to all beings. Mm -hmm. There's nobody who, to whom we're not connected. If someone punches you in the nose, it's because of some connection you have with that person. Somehow, there's, mm, of all the mm -hmm, billions mm -hmm. of people on the planet, there's a, some kind of energy that brought your nose and his fist together. Right, right, <laughs> so don't right, remove yourself right, from, the, right. from the equation. And uh, if you deal with it in a mindful way, in a spiritual way, it leads to transcendence and healing and growing. And if not, you just basically continue the same cycle and throw it out again unresolved. So that element is there very, very strong. But meanwhile, you know, on this planet right now, in the Indian world, we call this Kali Yug. They call this Kali Yug the Dark Age. People don't live very long. They're all dying of cancer and poisons and this, that, and the other. And, you know, it's rare to meet anyone over 100 years old today. Mm, mm, and every day mm. we hear someone in their... 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s dying. Yes. In the time of Buddha, natural death was over 100 years wow. old. Unlike the statements of medical, many medical practitioners and anthropologists. Right. <laughs> Buddha went out one day and met a 120-year-old man who asked him, I'm 120 years old, but I've still got four teeth left. <laughs> <laughs> How come I have such good karma? <laughs> what but anyway, so with this kind of sense of self and other it's always there and everyone always thinks their culture is best you know you go to america and people talk we're the greatest on the planet mm -hmm. the greatest, we're the leader of the free world blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I mean, i've never thought of obama or bush or clinton or as my leader right, right. <laughs> and i'm certainly part of the free world sure sure <laughs> and canadians because i have a kind of a quiet canadian pride <laughs> If you go to England, I mean, they think really everyone else just wishes they were born British. And the French, of course, you don't get people more snooty than the French. The Germans can be absolutely enthralled by how great they are. India, it's like they just make jokes about the Brits, you know, the overcooked veggies and right, undercooked right. culture. <laughs> China likes to point out how they're the greatest on the earth and when the Europeans were running around in caves with pieces of wood banging each other on the head, they had like fireworks and arrows. <laughs> so I think everyone thinks of themselves as the best on the planet. And we tend to see differences as meaning not as good. Mm -hmm. Like if you go to a so-called third world country or developing country, you know, I'll take groups on pilgrimage to Nepal, Tibet, Bhutan, Mongolia, and they'll think, well, I, back in the West, I live in such a bigger house and it's more comfy and the beds are more comfy. And that somehow shows better culture or a superior culture. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, this other, we have our old folks here go in like miserable old folks' homes and are abandoned. And they'll look at that and say, oh my God, those. Oh, yeah. the first time I brought llamas to Canada, they were so shocked when we visited an old folks' home. How can anyone do that to their old parents? How can you let your parents and grandparents go off to these places and just be surrounded by other old people? Yeah, <laughs> Everyone yeah, lying yeah, around watching yeah. each other die. How can anyone have a culture? So from their side, our culture was way, way below the quality of their culture. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah. And it's a natural way of looking at things. We always think that the way we do things, like I love it with American feminists. They talk about how barbaric the Chinese are to have their women bind their feet, to have delicate, beautiful feet. Meanwhile, they're walking around on three-inch stilettos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
which I think is well, at is least as painful as those bound feet. Contradiction and complexity <laughs> and paradox. And I mean, I think I think this sense of division is deeply troubling on so many levels. But I love I love your notion of this beneficial presence of others, and I think it's kind of a beautiful place to kind of wrap and, uh, up our conversation. The Dalai Lama's promoting what he calls secular ethics for mm. the new millennium. Mm and uh, secular spirituality for the new millennium, how to remove some of these uh, universal, universally beneficial contemplative techniques from a, any given uh, spiritual or cultural environment mm -hmm. and place them in a kind of a universal language. Mm -hmm. So Emory University and mm -hmm. Losling Monastery in, in Atlanta, which I helped form, found back in 91, I think it was, or 92, uh, they're doing a lot of work with that and um, training teachers to go around the world and teach this sort of secular humanism as a way, especially for young people sure. with uh, yeah, primary schools and secondary schools. Because otherwise, uh, people very often have difficulty with the smallest issue. And rather than that small issue become seen as small, it basically becomes seen as bigger, sure, amplifies, sure. and then yeah. you get things like school shootings and suicides yeah, and yeah. depression and so on and so it's all, forth. It's all connected. Uh, so in, in conclusion, I'd yeah. just like to say yeah, that uh, it's always a great pleasure for me when I come in and lecture in Canada. After my studies in India, I came back for a few years. I was based on Toronto Island for a while, mm. which was very friend of mine found me a house and then they found nice. another one and I was there for two or three years before I sort of uh, wanted to spend more time in Asia and when I come west to so it's always really wonderful for me to come to Canada and to lecture and well, thank uh, you. lead workshops uh, this weekend I'm in Toronto at a place called the Urban Nirvana Wellness Center mm. <laughs> about which I know very little they invited me to come and do a nice. Friday evening talk and a weekend workshop there excellent and of course, for my books, I've written about 30 of them, and you can find them on my website, glennmullen.com. Buy two of each and read them all twice. <laughs> That's excellent <laughs> advice. There's a wisdom in that, I think. Uh, Glenn. I, I, stole, I stole that from, uh, not Bill Murray, uh, Martin Short used Martin the Short. line in a movie once. <laughs> Glenn, Glenn Mullen is the world-renowned author of more than 25 books on Central Asian culture. He's a translator of classical Tibetan literature. He's led tours for over 20 years to Tibet, to Nepal, and China, Mongolia. Check him out, please, online, glennmullen.com. Is yes. that correct? Mm -hmm. glennmullen.com. Thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your insight. I really appreciate it. It's a real honor for me to my be here My joy, today. my pleasure. And Thank you for coming over to this remote little town of Burlington. <laughs> the hamlet of Burlington. <laughs> thanks, thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.